The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Good evening, everyone. A um, couple of disclaimers and announcements. I think the schedule until a few days ago said that Mara Young was supposed to give the talk this evening. So those of you who came here expecting to see Mara, I know you're a very mindful practitioner, so you can see I'm not her. So... I don't think Mark intended to be a bait and switch, but I wanted to do the teen group this morning, so I wanted to meet with them, and hence I'm sitting here in front of you this evening. Um, also, it's been a long day for me here. I co-facilitated the teen group. This afternoon I had a four-hour pain workshop. And so I don't think I can take responsibility for anything I may say this evening. <laughs> um, I see some familiar faces, but uh, I may be a stranger to most of you. Uh, my name is Ramesh Sairam. I'm a geriatric psychiatrist by profession. Uh, I've been coming to Common Ground for about 10 years. Um, I have another interest in chronic pain, and so I've been leading the pain workshop for about five years now. And um, from time to time, Mark, and he can't find anyone else, looks at the bottom of the barrel finds me hiding there and says, you give the talk, and that's why I'm here. But I agreed to give the talk on the condition that I'm allowed to use this as my support group. I mean, I don't, I'm not a teacher, I'm not here to disp- I know, impart any wisdom, but he gave me permission to just share you know, what I've been experiencing in my practice. So when I gave the talk in March this year, um, I was going through a bit of what I call funk. And, but I attributed it to the winter and, you know, failed resolutions. And so I, I had an answer. And I talked about effort and faith and all the good stuff. I'm happy to report that the last six months have been deeper funk. <laughs> so when you don't learn from your mistakes, you go back and learn. So that's what I'm going to talk about. Not anything inspiring, um, but I'm going to talk about uh, funk, so how many of you, looking back at your last six months, have had periods where you would have told a close friend, I'm in a funk? Okay, good. So I'm not going to put you to sleep. Um, but I, as I, you know, so I was, just about a week ago, I decided, okay, I'm going to talk about this. Because as I met my friends, and I kept saying the same thing, I'm in a funk. How was your summer? Yeah, I've been in a funk. Nothing's wrong with my life. And so what does that mean? And uh, so I really delved into it, and I can honestly say today I'm not in a funk. And that's thanks to this opportunity to kind of look up and study what funk means. So, um, so for me, funk was in relation to both my meditation practice, but also life uh, in general. So it was listless. I was sitting on the cushion, walking, did a private retreat. Uh, just everything felt mechanical. You know, being there, done that kind of stuff. Um, but then I kept saying, I'm in a funk. And then I, I was reminded of meeting, you know, people over a period of months, and they kept saying, I'm, I'm so stressed out. But it struck me that it just became a label, I'm so stressed out. But it just, and it was, a, and then the reaction from that. So there was this some stuff going on underneath, and it was, it was given a label, I'm stressed out and they kept constantly reacting to it. So that was the first question that came to my mind is, am I using I'm in a funk in the same way? Not really, 
aware of what's going on, but just a label. I think I know what's going on because what I was doing in my meditation practice is following our wise teachers. You know, this is how it is. So I'm in a funk, this is how it is. Well, eight months later, I'm still in a funk and this is still things are the way they are. I'm not any further along. So the question came up, but why isn't my mindfulness working? You know, they said, you be mindful of the present moment and you'll get clarity and nirvana. If not, at least half a halo. You know, I've got a big halo up here, but nothing behind me. And so then I got into, okay, why am I in a funk? So I said, okay, let me go beneath it. And all kinds of reasons came up. And it's, you know, I'm a psychiatrist in the mental health field. Um, life is always challenging. I'm also in an administrative role. So dealing with, you know, colleagues and administrators and nurses. Uh, so there's a feeling of trapped, you know, there's... I, I can do all I want to, but things don't change. Um, and then the other thing, this whole climate change and global warming and that kind of fights tussle back and forth. Um, I, I believe in um, simple living, frugal living, but I don't have to be an economist to realize that if everyone in the world lived like me, uh, millions of people would be unemployed. The economy, modern-day economy, depends on mass production and mass consumption. So... So do I advocate for frugal living or um, mass consumption? Again, a sense of helplessness. I don't know which way to go. And then most recently came up this whole refugee crisis. And I'm just throwing things. I mean, if you had asked me a month ago, there would have been another set of these kinds of, I know, dichotomous situations. This, this. So do I, with the refugee crisis, do I see the Syrian point of view? Do I blame them? Do I see the Europeans as in accepting or guarding? Or do I be confused like I am, trying to see both sides? Or do I just numb out? But either way, the final response is I'm in a funk. And so, so the first level was I'm in a funk that lasted six months. Then the last month, six weeks, I got down to the stories. But so what? I was still going back and forth and not getting anywhere. And so the frustration was, why is this mindfulness practice, this fabulous thing, uh, not working? And close behind it was doubt. Now, many of you may know those five hindrances that Mark talks about often. And are you familiar with the five hindrances? So these are um, kind of reactive patterns that emerge during course of mindfulness practice. Um, greed or craving is one. Uh, aversion or just pushing away is one. Um, restlessness. So... Some of you may have experienced it, just hearing my voice today. Shut up. So, uh, or uh, the other way, dullness. So restlessness, or you go to the other way, sleepiness. But the fifth one is often seen later in the stages of practice. It's doubt. And it's one of the most pernicious of influences. So there's one kind of doubt that's the kind of obvious one. You know, I don't believe in this Buddhist stuff, you know. Uh, I need a God, and uh, whatever. You know, there's the basic questioning or the basic premises of Buddhism. That's okay. That's a very obvious kind of doubt. But the other kind of doubt is what masquerades as analytical thinking. I'm just trying to figure things out. It's like what I was doing. Why am I in a funk? You know, and as if my thinking through can sort it out. As if, of all the diplomats in the world, I'm the one sitting here who can figure out the refugee crisis in there or this climate change. 
And the mind creates this illusion that I have some control, but then periodically it gets this dope slap reality check that you're not in control, and what do I, the doctor, feel when I can't deliver goods? I slink, and I get this kind of numbness sense of, I'm in a funk. And so, so the first layer of acknowledging that I'm in a funk didn't help. Delving into the stories didn't help. And so, the doubt about the whole value of practice. But then I realized that my trying to analyze my, analyze my way through it is just another form of hindrance. Because living in the modern day life, analytical thinking, problem solving has served as well. And that's how we get through our daily lives. But these intractable problems, and it doesn't have to be big things. It's relationships with our spouses, raising children, relating to our colleagues. Just pesky little stuff where you feel like, I don't have as much control as I thought, often can leave us with this sense of helplessness. And that's the one theme that came as I looked at the various scenarios that may have contributed to my funky state was, I had this feeling of, I don't have control. You know, or even if I do something, nothing's going to change. I can lead the most frugal life and, the, you know, London may still be flooded 100 years from now or whatever. And so I noticed also the questions were, why is this happening? How did this happen? And how can I fix it? And the, the insight I came into just a few days ago was that was the wrong question. Because that's the question that suits my mind because it doesn't have to do the real work of what's going on. So the true question is, what is happening instead of why is it happening? Because I don't even know what that it is. I just assume that it's a funk. So I just stay with the funk and it'll go. But that was just a label. That was the finger pointing to the moon. I'm still looking at the finger, haven't even seen the moon. And then I had a glimpse of the moon with the stories, but stories are easy because I can try and solve them. So then I came down to, oh, so this doubt for me is, this is the true hindrance. It's actually saying, you go any deeper, you're going into some dark areas. And so it's easy for me to just protect myself and go through the mechanics, report to Mark every few months. Yeah, I'm sitting, I'm going retreats, I'm a good meditator, but getting nowhere. But on the other hand, doubt is also an essential positive contributor to long-term mindfulness practice. If, you, if we didn't have doubt, our practice will stagnate. If you never questioned what's happening now, you'll just settle for the superficialities. If you, doubt is the essential element to curiosity. And all the folks who, you know, all the advances that have been made in the last thousand years, they've all come from people who questioned the status quo. So without that doubt, whether in real life or in our own, you know, kind of mindfulness practice, it's essential. And you also don't settle for, you know, blind faith. You know, and then sometimes, you know, in many other meditation centers, people have got into trouble with having blind faith in a teacher or a teaching. Uh, these are teachings that were orally delivered for 500 years, and then translated, or transcribed, and then translated. Lots of things get trans lost in translation. So it's good to take the gestalt of the teachings, but also when you apply it to yourself in the 21st century, have some curiosity and doubt about how they may apply. And so doubt is an essential component of asking the right question, which is not that, why am I in a funk, but what is funk? It's just 
a kind of you know nebulous state that I just given that label to. So this is what I found about what are the elements of my. I'm going to focus just on the practice part. So my dharma practice or my dharmic funk. So the first one was that just as in so many other areas of life, I looked at meditation as a tool, as a technique. So what if there was a problem in my life, I apply mindfulness. On the other hand, I'll have a solution. And I don't know if you fall for that trap, but I suspect many of us do that repeatedly because that's how we function. There's so many things are linear. There's a problem, you identify the solution, and you implement the solution, and there's an outcome. It works in so many areas of life that we come to believe that that's the way life will function until we get married or have children or have to relate to people. But even then, we keep beating the same path. But the, the consequence is on us. Either we get stressed out because we do the same thing, and then there's a pressure on us, so we get stressed out, or we numb out, which is the funky state. And the numbing, numbing out doesn't necessarily have to be just being in a funk. You can just numb out in front of the TV or with a tub of haagen in your face. You know, we all have our own ways of funk, but it, either you act out or you kind of close in. And so for me, the last six months, practice became a kind of a checklist. Did I sit on most days? Yeah. Did I do a couple of retreats? Yeah. Did I read? Yeah. But all mechanical. And the same dharma talks. Oh, I've heard that before. I wasn't even hearing them. And I read this. I'm going to read from this. This is one of my favorite books by Ajahn Sumedho. And the same paragraphs I read a month or two ago didn't register. And I read it this week, and it's like, Halfway to nirvana. It's like, wow, how did I miss that? Therein lies, that's the, I wasn't questioning. I was asking the wrong question. I was expecting to read this and have a solution to the problem. Whereas what he's guiding me with was, you're asking the wrong questions. And then the other part is that recognition that this funk is more a numbing protection. And often numbing is a good thing. You can't open your heart to every kind of pain. So I do change channels after maybe 10 minutes of watching an interview with a refugee crisis in Hungary. If I just opened up and watched that day after day, I, my psyche can't handle it. So it's okay to numb out, to recognize it. But if you're numbing out in a blind way all the time, then you'll, you'll have a very constricted, uh, unaware life. So it's that allowing chinks in that armor First of all, recognizing the armor and then allowing some chinks because that's how you open up to the way things are. But then in preparing for this, I came across quite a few interesting examples that we don't have to go to these big geopolitical problems. So it was a very nice talk by a teacher from England named Christina Feldman. Um, she's on Dharma Seed. So this was years ago in the 80s. She uh, was flying into California for a, uh, to do a long retreat and she had also had the manuscript the only copy of the manuscript for her uh, the book that she was about to publish. And, of course, the luggage doesn't show up, and the luggage never shows up. So she had the manuscript, and all the, it was a, I don't know, 20-day retreat, all the paperwork that she had prepared. So, and she's with a bunch of, you know, dharma folks, and one person says, well, that will teach you not to make copies. Oh, thank you. I didn't know that. Another person says, well, that's a good opportunity for you to practice uh, equanimity. Another person saying, you know, all things are impermanent. And then one person says, 
I'll send you metta. Loving kindness. And then it's when the one final person said, this must be really hard for you. <laughs> and that's the thing. The reason why this is an analogous to Funk is her pain. These are people who cared about her. But so many of us are losing or have lost the ability to connect with someone's pain. So it's a solution. So this is, Christina is a good friend of mine. She's in a difficult situation. I feel the pain. Let me solve the problem. So um, they, they all, in a well-meaning way, giving her advice, but none of that connected with the way things were. Not that the last person who said that things must be difficult was of any help, but it's that, for me, the message was how quickly we, how quick we are to coming up with platitudes. But the platitude is not from a, a kind of closeness of our heart. It's our fear of opening to the vulnerability of someone else. And so... And then the flip side is, there is this belief that if you see something that's unfair, if you're not outraged, you are not really connecting with it. So either we numb out, or the sense that, you know, whether it's racial injustice, or poverty, or name it, whatever, there's the belief that if I'm just talking about it, if I'm ranting about it, raving about it, I'm really connecting. But that's another form of numbing, is just numbing in an acting out way but it still doesn't connect you with the pain of the things. In this instance, the pain causes me to get so angry that I'm going to go do some stuff. You know, marching is good, but so long as you're aware that it's just another tool as opposed to you being connecting with things that are not, are not amenable to quick fixes. And then this word in my profession that's become so toxic, closure, finality, resolution. Well, what's happening in the Middle East did not start with George Bush. Or you keep going back. I don't know how far you want to go back. But it didn't, it, that's why the Buddha said causes and conditions. He didn't say this cause and this condition. We will never be able to figure out all the causes and conditions that led to this crisis. And I think that this stupid psychiatrist can solve my way through, solve, you, know, you know, think my way to solving that problem. But that's the kind of arrogant thinking that this mind can create, that I am being, you know, um, I can solve this problem, but it finally comes back to, I feel so much pain that I want my pain to go away. I do want them to be happy, but right now, since I can't do anything, every time I turn on the news, it's painful. So my desire for mindfulness practice here is this notion that if I just do mindfulness, I'll be in a happy place where this won't bother me. As I said, this is a support group. I'm opening up here. So, <laughs> By the way, it's all confidential, so you can't talk outside. You too, Eric. <laughs> and then the, 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 the story that really resonated with me was about the Dalai Lama and then this whole notion of closure. Um, so uh, some, some time ago, um, someone asked the Dalai Lama if he um, did something or said something that uh, caused uh, pain. And he said, yeah. And apparently, many years ago, in Dharamshala, there was an elderly monk um, who heard that the Dalai Lama had given a talk to a bunch of uh, young uh, monks about a certain technique. And so the, the older monk came and asked Dalai Lama, so, you know, I'd like to learn that as well, because I hear it's a powerful technique. Dalai Lama said, you know, it's a really tough one. Um, it may be more applicable to folks who are younger, 
and I'm concerned about your well-being. So keep doing the practices that you've been doing. You will have other opportunities. Within the next 48 hours, this monk uh, committed suicide. And his notion was that I'll be born as a younger monk and I can do that new practice. So that's the background story. So this is the Western audience and one person asks, so how did you get over it? Now apparently the story as I heard it was, it took the Dalai Lama quite some time to answer, I haven't gotten over it. There is nothing getting over it. It's a tragedy. I said something, causes, conditions, bad outcome. But we're so driven by getting over it. And that's in my psychiatric practice. It struck me years ago when a mother was sent to me for depression because her um, 16-year-old daughter was killed in a car accident. The circumstances were the, the, the daughter's friend had a driving license and got a car and they were all going out for a spin and this daughter really wanted to join the group. Get in the car, car gets into a ditch, the only person killed is this daughter. And of course the mother had you know, thought through hundreds of times whether to let her daughter go or not, so she's beating herself up. Eight months down the line, she's still grieving. She's told, you must be depressed, you need to see a psychiatrist. Uh, for some antidepressants. And it, what struck me was, who decided that there is a certain timeline by which a mother can get over the death of her daughter? And I see that over and over again. You know, Eric and I, we practice geriatrics, end-of-life issues. There's so much black-and-white thinking that's kind of crept in. So I digress a little bit, but the, the, the aspect of closure, needing a solution often drives this desire. We, we look at meditation as a tool for a solution, not recognizing that so many situations, all we can do is be with the way things are. And then finally, you know, if we are honest, we all come to meditation to have a sense of calm and peace. Well, half my guided meditation was about be comfortable, be at peace. But we have to acknowledge that more time, more often than not, that won't happen. But again, that desire is so deep-seated, especially many of us who sought mindfulness practice, came to common ground because you know, we were troubled by situations in our lives or in the world, and so we came for some peace. But after a few years, we should be at a point where we recognize that you know, that's just, you know, we may have an aspiration for peace and well-being, but having a kind of dedicated, this is how I will be at the end of this practice is setting yourself up for failure. So now that with this background, what do we do? And so what I learned was it's that framework of my mind that determines what I see. And the example of this book, I read that paragraph. I discussed this book with a, uh, a friend from here. So I read this chapter you know, two or three times in the last month. But not until this week did those paragraphs just jump out at me, literally smack me on my face. So I realized that my cognitive framework, the kind of my perspective, allowed me to see things that I was blind to the last month. Over the last month, I was reading this chapter just like I read all the other books. Okay, I've heard that, I've heard that. And this brings me back to what, um, how many of you are familiar with Utejaniya? He's often quoted here, Mark. Yeah. So he's a teacher that has really influenced um, many folks in this uh, Vipassana community over the last couple of years. And he talks in his retreats about the yogis have just three jobs. And the first job is right view. The second is um, maintain, uh, 
have awareness, and then third is sustain awareness. But it, again, you know, periodically I'm reminded of how important the right view is. If you, if you don't have the right perspective, your mind will keep seeing what it's used to seeing. So whether it's a happy situation or a sad situation, we will see it based on our structuring. So what I may call you know, cognitive framework or cognitive perspective is in mindfulness practice called right view, which is, the first, which is one of the, you know, of the steps of the Eightfold Path. And that's why now I understand why, even after 10 years, why it's so important to start anything that you do with some sense of intention. Why did you folks decide to come here on a Sunday evening to listen to some guy called Ramesh Sairam? You know, were you trying to punish yourself? Were you trying to, you know, I just do this penance and maybe I'll do... But whatever it was, connect to the intention. Because somewhere along the way, if you suddenly feel like questioning boredom, but that's mind going off into a story. So intention is what keeps you connected to the things as they are. And so that's what, it's been very difficult for me. I've just, in a very conscientious way over the last maybe few months, I've been trying to connect. been very difficult because eight years of meditation was sit down, bell goes off, get to the body. It was never about softening uh, some of the hard practices. So intention is something that starts off there. So let me read a couple of sections from this book that um, jumped out at me. And just hear it for what they are. So he's, this is all, these are all talks to his uh, monks at uh, Amaravati in England. With the intellect, with the reasoning mind, we want clarity. We want answers to questions, solutions to problems. There is a desire to know, what should I do first? I might say, this is Ajahn Sumedho saying, I might say, well, do Anapanasati first, and then after you get a certain level of calm, do reflection on the body. So you're quite willing to follow instructions because it gives you a sense of security if you know exactly what I expect you to do, because you don't trust yourself, your intuitive sense of how things are. And that is one of the keys, is that the need for clarity and that either someone out there will provide clarity, or if I just do this, there will be clarity. But clarity is a, a notion that I've created. So when it comes to climate change, maybe clarity is there is no climate change, which is a false premise. I'm creating a situation and expecting that to happen if I just do something. All disconnected, but we go through our lives in so many different ways of, with this kind of a mindset. And then he switches to by no longer just wanting recipes or formulas or certainties for meditation, the more you meditate, you can understand right view as uncertainty, not knowing. Now he's talking about meditation and retreats. For me, I find it much more applicable to daily life. As in, there's so much uncertainty, so much confusion, there's so much this could be, but that could be. And instead of finding some way of allowing things, accepting things, or at least opening to things, my mind still goes back to trying to fix it, and when that doesn't happen, either there's a reactive numbness as a fung, or a reactive stressing out. Uncertainty is no longer something to be resisted, rejected, or a source of suffering. It is just the way it is. It is what you can know directly at this moment, and it may not give you a sense of exactly how it is right now, but that's how it is. 
So putting that onus back on you to trust your intuitive sense rather than always doubting, wanting the teacher to tell you, or wanting to follow instructions will not clear your insecurity or your confusion. But how do I know I can believe this? So this is then the flip side to doubt. So in many Buddhist teachings, they have a problem and they always have an antidote. So the antidote to doubt is the F word of Buddhism. It's called faith. I know it doesn't sit well with a lot of folks who come to centers like this because it smacks of creed and beliefs and rituals. So the word for um, faith is uh, sadha in Pali or shraddha in Sanskrit. It's the first one of the five spiritual faculties. I, find, I found that list to be the most helpful for my practice, and there are some excellent talks on Dharma Seed. But I'll give you examples of why faith helps me. In faith, okay, and what I'll use is the word uh, trust or confidence, because faith is, I'm from India, it's Hinduism, it's all about blind faith. Uh, so I, I, that word sits uncomfortably for me, but trust and confidence is something I can resonate with. So even though I was in funk for all these months, what was it that kept me going? And that's what gave me the confidence that there's more to it. Even though I had doubt, even though I was just doing it mechanically, there was some deeper undercurrent of belief that, you know, if I just hang in there, something will, something will happen. And this week happened. Um, the other thing is without faith we will never take chances or without trust we will never take chances so I know some of you who work in corporate um, in the corporate environments you know some of them go through these trust building exercises they make you stand on a little higher place and then ask you just to close your eyes and fall backwards and trust that somebody behind you will hold you and it's amazing how difficult it is to do it. And it's because instinctively we protect ourselves. But if you get comfortable within, you do practice for some months or a couple of years and you get to a point, and if you get comfortable there, that's all you'll know. But if the true desire is to, you know, the bigger goals of mindfulness practice, open-heartedness, connecting with the way things are, some sense of release and freedom, then you have to always question, if you're in a comfortable place, then you're not opening. And two or three years ago, during one of the teacher's retreats here, Mark said something, and then simultaneously my, uh, my boss at work said something in different contexts. What Mark said was, you know, if you feel like you're good at some aspects of practice, go to the edge and find some dark corner and try stepping into it. Um, around the time the opportunity came for me to become the medical director of the department, and I had all these stories, you know, and they were all stories. You know, I'm not good at it, I don't have the personality, or uh, whatever. But after, and then my, uh, my boss said, he heard all this and he said, what are you afraid of? I had never equated the word fear to my resistance to taking the job as medical director. All I had to do was think about it for a couple of days and all the stories came up. I'm going to let down my colleagues. I'll be an idiot in front of them. 
and make a fool of myself, the length of stay will be out of control, uh, it, all those kind of parameters, and I'll be the worst medical director ever. doesn't matter. I may still be the worst medical director, but I'm it. But it was that this kind of sequence of events, so I decided to sign up with the teen group. I'm a geriatric psychiatrist. Working with older folks comes easily for me. Teens, the challenges, the, you know, their home situations, really, it's tightness all around. I'm not going to become a child psychiatrist, but I can start here. And even here, just listening to the stories, the difficulties, it, it takes a certain level of opening and softening. But that was one dark corner here, but then, um, then the other one was this talk, or talks like these. I mean, what gives me any kind of confidence that I can sit here and give a talk? But it's easier now than the first talk, you know, a couple of years ago. But it's that sense of, the story was, I'll make a fool of myself. Only five people will show up when they see that Ramesh Sairam is giving the talk. Out of 50 people show up, they'll go away disappointed. But all these are stories. Even if many of you are disappointed, how does that really affect me? These are all internal stories. And so that's the aspect of trust. And so you can trust in a teacher or trust in a book, but at the end of the day, it comes back to trust in yourself. Because if you want to start delving into the next level layers of what's the cause of my funk, why can't I deal with some of these challenges where I feel trapped? When I feel trapped, my mind always wants to react and find a solution. I have to allow myself to be vulnerable. I may have to sit and watch an hour-long program on the refugees and be there and watch all the, whether it's aversion, whether it's despair, whether it's pain, whether it's numbing. So I may not sit the whole hour, but I may start with 20 minutes. 25 minutes. But that's practice. I can't just expect to go for a retreat for half, you know, for a week and have a nice, you know, comfortable sit and think that that somehow will translate into my dealing with interpersonal problems, um, you know, problems at work or relationships. And so that's the, so recognizing funk as a big kind of signpost there that something is not right with your practice. But getting beyond this, the label getting beyond why is it happening to the stories that are leading to the fung and to finally that this is how things are but now I have to drop the stories of a linear if I do this, this will happen and more than that it's just trusting that allowing some chinks in my armor will maybe give me some sense of opening and um, I don't even know what I'm looking for because having said that, don't look for something, I can't now create some sense of what am I looking for. Um, but that's another fear. How do you trust that there'll be a wholesome outcome? I don't know, but what motivates me is that all the alternatives won't work for me. Because all the TV I can watch, all the Hagen does, all the internet, all the travel, all the work, they still won't. They are just reactive patterns to this distress. So for me, the way my mind is constituted, this is where I may expect to find some freedom. And so the final uh, aspect is, so these are the two, the balancing forces, doubt and faith. If you have neither faith or trust and doubt, then it's just papered over by numbness. So once you recognize that there is some numbing, or you can apply all the principles that I talked about to stress as well. 
Stress is more like a dramatic way, energized way of the same thing. There is a situation that causes you distress. In some instances, you numb, so you feel like you're in a funk. Other instances, you act out, so you feel like I'm so stressed out. But the principles are the same. It is recognizing that stress or funk are just labels that indicate something. Tread cautiously. So use that doubt to inspire. That, you know, let me uh, inspire the, the curiosity to go explore. But then balance it out with, because if you just go blindly with, uh, you know, I'm doubting it, I'm going to go check it out, then you will, you're likely to create more problems. So how do you balance that energizing aspect of doubt with the faith that I have to go in a circumspect, cautious way, and so constantly feedback of each other? And the bigger problem is, can you endure this? And so, and you don't want to pick up huge projects like global warming or climate change. But as you look around life, I didn't mention some other examples, but as I was looking at the why aspect of my funk, there were so many trivial things going on in my daily life that are more workable. I can open up to many of those things and chip away and leave the bigger climate change crisis elsewhere. And so look at situations where you're faced with a particular person at work, say, and your interaction immediately leads to this tightening. So what is the tightening? Because that tightening added with four or five other similar situations is what causes numbness. Because I feel like I have no control over my life, I'm in a funk. But if you just pick one of those situations and try to apply some of these principles. Um, And I'll give an example of what happened in the last, uh, about two months ago. I had to speak to one of my colleagues about some somewhat disciplinary kind of matter. You know, things that he was doing was not right. I didn't sleep well the previous night, but I also, knowing his personality, I knew that he was not in a happy place. So, and I had all these scenarios of how it's going to be, he's going to be in a turmoil, I have to be you know, calm, and I have to be composed, and, but I'm so tight because I want to be everywhere but that room with him. And I hadn't planned this, and I said, you know, let's call him John. John, you know, I mean, this is really hard for me. You know, I didn't sleep last night. You know, this same situation just came up. And I can't believe what you must be going through to have to hear me lecture to you about what went wrong. And it was, it dropped, his thing dropped, and it wasn't contrived. It was, this is how things are. And that vulnerability part was, hey, John, I'm vulnerable, but not in the sense of I'm cowering, I'm vulnerable, but acknowledging the humanity of the situation, two peers having to have this difficult conversation with each other. And I think if I had planned it, it would not have gone that. It would have fallen flat because I would have been practicing it out. But somehow, all I can chalk it down to is the kind of this, the belief that if you just, vulnerability is okay. Opening up is okay. It just that that energy of that moment allowed me to say that, and I remember the because I got the feedback after the first talk I gave here at the practice meeting. You know, I I think I told folks, look at this, my hands are shaking, I'm a nervous wreck, you know, and folks come back until I pointed that out. 
Two folks said, you looked so cool out there. We couldn't believe you were nervous. So again, perceptions, all those things. But to me, that was, you know, it's a support group. I can share things. But look at small situations in your life where you feel this kind of, you're hitting a place. Not, a, not one of the situations where you feel like I'm hitting a roadblock. It's the situation where you feel like I am helpless. Nothing that I do will make a big difference, but you'll be amazed at what you can do that may change. And the biggest change you can do is release the burden of having to carry, uh, yeah, release the burden of having to carry the problem of that situation or the world. And then I, I can't thank some of the folks that I meet uh, on a regular basis, um, uh, folks who come here, my dharma buddies. And so some days, some of the meetings feel mechanical, and other times, like this morning, it was amazing. Um, Tom and I were talking about this book, and he brought up subjects that just seemed to meld with what I was going to talk about today. It's like fate, something I don't believe in. But all I think is that I was primed to be receptive to wonderful advice that's there all around, but so long as I was blinded by this notion of, I'm in a funk, I'm in a funk, just, just blah, 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 I wasn't receptive, uh, open to receiving. I'm going to stop blah, blah, blahing. We have about 15 minutes. If you have any questions, there's a mic, Nick has a mic, and... If you uh, just hold it really close to your mouth so you can hear, we can hear you. We'll pass it around the group. Well, there are two criteria. Mark gets at least three or four questions. You know, my ego is very fragile. If it's not a single question, there's going to be some bawling. And Mark also said, doesn't matter if they don't want to ask any questions, still keep them here till 8.30. <laughs> so, you can stare at this ugly face. Or, Thank you, ma'am. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so I'm Robin and I'm doing this right okay um, I think in in the work of doing criminal justice reform um, my intentionality is really rooted in a place of of problem solving um, and the idea that there's multiple people that have been able to do innovative work um, around this issue. So there, in, in knowing that this innovation exists, somebody has to answer. That answer exists somewhere in this damn country, in this world, or something. And if I do enough, somehow it will come to me and things will be fine and we're going to solve it all. And I don't know when this realization hits that this issue will probably and more than likely exist even after I'm gone, um, as in most issues. And even with the milestones that we've made um, around various inequities, um, there's something else that resurfaced or that comes into play. And the, I guess the, 
rippling effects of that milestone diminishes. And then we shift our attention towards, okay, let's figure out how to do or, or solve this, this next issue. And understanding that they're momentary, um, that chaos continues humanity and our ability to interact with each other in very humane ways um, fluctuates. And that even goes to the person who's well-intentioned, as you mentioned in your narrative, the, the um, Dalai Lama even had that experience. Um, and just being okay with starting with, well, I, I have Monday to do something. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily going to be motivating people to understand how prisons are just warehouses for people. Um, but if I'm meeting with one person or an ex-felon, and if there's a way I could be an asset for them in that moment, I'm okay with that. And then if I have the fortune to wake up Tuesday and do something else, I'm okay with that. And knowing that it's not going to be solved in 50 years or 40 years. And I think that was troubling to actually be okay with that. It's like, what's wrong with me? Um, <laughs> but um, I think your talk really shed light on kind of where that realization is is rooted. And it's okay. Um, and, and not having the answer and knowing that in the process of even trying to seek an answer, that process is going to wander. And it might not fit the linear projection that I think it's going to go in. And that's exactly what is supposed to happen because this world is messy. We're messy people. It's just, it's just mess. <laughs> and that's what happens. And there's no in, no de- definitive, definitive kind of trajectory in this. So I just want to say thank you. No, but thank you thank for sharing you. that. That was so... I mean, I mean, I can resonate with that, but because you're doing far more difficult work, mental health field is challenging, but I know the criminal justice system is... Yeah, but you you just brought out the whole sort of sense of vulnerability is not working in this setting is to acknowledge the sense of our helplessness, but not in a despairing way. What struck me, and this is another support group kind of confession, <laughs> so, you know, at the same time, I realized how insecure and arrogant this mind of mine is. So, see, this talk, okay? So I start out with the premise that I'm a lousy speaker. You know, the stories, whether, you know, whether it's real or not doesn't matter. So I can't put together a talk. You know, it's all going to be rambling. No one's going to make any sense. You know, I don't know why Mark's making me do this. I should, wish I hadn't signed up for this. Because it's all insecurity, right? So I'm not a good person. That's fine. But if I find out that a couple of you didn't like this talk, I'll be the most outraged person. <laughs> So am I insecure and lacking in self-confidence or am I an egotistic, narcissistic person who thinks I gave the best talk? But it's amazing how often, I hope I'm not the only one, you know, (laughs) can it go back and forth? But that's the vulnerability. I think we have both aspects of it. I want to do the best. And, but I, the wisdom is in recognizing if I just go at it blindly, beating my head against the wall, then either I hurt myself or I go to the other extent of despair and numbing out. And so either you be engaged and take the pain, or you despair and go take care of yourself, or that middle way of 
listening to your body, listening to your heart, open up to the extent you can, but also opening up to being the kind of vulnerable human you are. Uh, I found it extremely helpful. I've, read, I've been reading history for most of my life. And early on, it was more the interesting, factual aspects, sequential things. But the last three, four years, the reading of history has been so humbling. And so just a quick summary of just the last hundred years. Exactly a hundred years ago, the most civilized place on this planet fought the most vicious war, which was labeled the war to end all wars. 50,000 people dying in a day, what's the big deal? You know, Psalm and Ypres. So it was a war to end all wars that set up the perfect scenario 20 years later for Second World War. And then I just finished the, a book on that, and you realize the tough decisions that Churchill and, and uh, uh, Roosevelt and Eisenhower had to make. With hindsight, you realize that every, so much of what they did set up the perfect setting for the Cold War and Stalin to be there. So easy to second guess. And then the Cold War led to Vietnam. And you can just go on and on and Bush and whatever. But that's the, the humility is in, oh, I think I would have done differently. No, under the causes and conditions, people did what they could do. And it's this kind of belief in, and the desire for control and predictability. And so how do you then not jump into despair and say, well, I'm not going to go engage. I'm just going to go have a few beers every night and watch TV. So that's the vulnerability. If we were the kind of people who'd be sitting on a Sunday evening there instead of here, we would be there. But the causes and conditions cause us to be here. So wanting something else to happen is going against the grain. So we've chosen this path, and vulnerability is the name of the game. But protect yourself with people around you, because this is a very lonely battle if you're just doing it by yourself. Yes, sir. From the other, the other side of the same subject, though, is that over the last 40 years or so, um, uh, countries and, and whole continents uh, have become much less repressive. Um, there were, you know, uh, 40 years ago, there were uh, scores of countries that routinely violated human rights of their citizens that don't do it anymore. Um, countries in which uh, disappearances and political killings were the norm, torture was the norm. Um, and things have gotten better. How did they get better? Um, how did things in South Africa, for example, change so quickly um, from, from uh, a situation that people thought couldn't change? And I think the answer is what you and Robin were talking about. It's um, enough people recognizing what they can do on, on this day, on, on listening to your, as you said, listening to yourself, listening to your heart. And, and realizing that you can't fix it, um, that no one of us can fix anything. But all of us together, listening to what we can do, listening to ourselves about we can, what we can do on a, on a given day, all of us together can make it better. Well said. Yes, ma'am. Uh, 
I'm just interested to know the name of the book that you read from. It's called The Sound of Silence by Ajahn Sumedho. Mark recommended this to me in 2005. I didn't open it till about four years ago. I'd opened, meaning I didn't get through the first chapter till four years ago. It's that there's a time and place and just didn't make sense. And I'm marinating in it right now. Okay, well, thank you for your question. So we can just sit for a couple of minutes. Let us depart this evening with an intention, maybe even a commitment, to see all the problems of the world the suffering, and the challenges in our personal or professional lives is nothing but the unavoidable consequences of all the previous causes and conditions, the natural flow of life energy. To the extent we are able to, let's create the intention to open our hearts and allow the flow of the course of events without numbing or despair but with the intention to respond in the most wholesome way that our hearts tell us to. And may the benefits of this practice gradually spread to all the people near and dear to us, the strangers in our lives, and all the people and living beings all over the world. May there be peace and end of suffering. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.